Well, if you guys have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, and we always have extra Bibles here by the offering box or out in the lobby if you forgot yours. Um, But I'd encourage you to grab one and open up to Hebrews chapter 5. Well, well, growing up, uh, I had a basketball coach who I was a bit intimidated of, and especially as an underclassman. He was just a very intimidating uh, guy. He would wear suit and ties to the basketball games uh, along with cowboy boots. And uh, many of you, maybe you'd like that style, cowboy boots. I don't think he was doing it for a style necessarily. Uh, He wore the cowboy boots so that he could stomp on the gym floor and get your attention. And so I now still can even just like hear that sound and and hear him stomping, you know, when you did something that wasn't right or you did something wrong, you just knew you were going to hear the stomp of the boots followed by maybe an arms crossed and like a scowl or like a, hey, walker. And I know, I know we got preschoolers in here this morning. Uh, we're a little short on volunteers for the month of January. Preschoolers, we are glad to have you here. Um, and, and don't worry, I got you, okay? I got you. You're in here in January. I understand. Let's actually have preschoolers and elementary kids. I need you guys to help me out on this, okay? This will help set the tone for the rest of the sermon, okay? So if you're an elementary school or, or preschooler, can you guys just stand up where you're at? Uh, for a second. Go ahead and stand up. Don't be nervous. I'm not calling you to the front. Just go ahead and stand up and give me your best like arms crossed stomp and scowl. Let me see. I'm not very good at it. Let's see. We got some scowls over there. Scowls. Okay, that's a pretty good one. You've done that before, I think. Yeah. Any in the back? Okay. The stomp and scowl. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, now I don't know about you guys. Thank you guys. You guys can be seated. Um, Uh, Now, I don't know about you guys, but that style of coaching did not really motivate me like it did for some others. What it actually caused me to feel was a bit paralyzed uh, because I was always afraid that I was going to make a mistake. And I had this fear of failure, fear of upsetting um, our coach. And then what would happen the next day is we would have a film session where then we would break down the film and that we actually all individually had scorecards and we were scored on kind of the positive and negative things we did throughout the game. And so I would sometimes come into the day after a game, a game maybe we won, a game that I thought like I had played well in to find out that on my scorecard, I had like a negative seven or something like that. It was a very strict scoring thing. Most of us were in the negatives, even on a game that we won, uh, because if we were not in the right position or if we were not in the right stance or if we maybe shot it and we should have passed it or something like that, those all counted as negative negative points for us. And so you, I would kind of just end up dreading going into those days, even after the day of a, a victory, a day that we felt like, hey, we had done pretty well, uh, because I knew I was likely going to get a negative scorecard. And as a result, I, I dreaded going to those film sessions. Uh, I dreaded, you know, on the court, hearing my coach's voice and the stomping of his boots And I found myself really just a lot of times not playing for the joy of the game, but just playing to not make him upset. And sadly, this is how many of us live our lives, because many of us wrongly view God like this. 
as if he was a God that was just waiting over our shoulder, waiting for us to make a mistake so he could stomp his shoe at us and scowl. And many of us, we come in here this morning knowing that as the people of God, the body of Christ, we come to celebrate Christ's victory, his life, death, and resurrection, the victory that he has won for us. And yet some of us come in with a sense of dread that God is going to pull us aside and say, yeah, I know Christ was victorious, but you actually had a negative seven this week. So simmer down the joy a little bit, all right? Wipe that smile off your face. Don't you realize all the ways that you failed God this week? I mean, you did this, you thought that, you said this, you didn't do such and such, and you should have done that. And many of us, because of this wrong view of God, we are paralyzed in our walk with Christ. We find ourselves afraid to approach him, afraid to be known by him, afraid to be to make ourselves known to one another and instead of enjoying his presence in our lives we are content to just joylessly live in a way that hopefully won't make him upset but then we come to hebrews 5 and I know it's been a little over a month since we've been in the book of Hebrews. We're, we're going just verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. It's going to take a few weeks for us to be refreshed and reminded about where we are at in the book of Hebrews. But in the next few chapters, and in really in the next few months, we will be learning about how Jesus is our great high priest. He is our great high priest. Now, a lot of times we talk about uh, what Christ has done to become our great high priest, how he lived and died and rose from the dead, how he ascended into heaven and sits on the throne, how he is interceding for us right now, how he offered up himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And listen, all that's, said, all that's well and good. We should talk about those things, what he has done to become our great high priest. But, but we also need to talk about what kind of high priest he is. Like, what, what is he like? What's the, what's the posture of his heart? Is he a priest that is stomping, yelling, and scowling? Or is his heart and is his posture something much more glorious than that? And you'll remember in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is written like a sermon where the author is kind of flipping back and forth between exposition and exhortation, okay? So he's got, time, he's got passages where he's teaching, he's explaining some of these Old Testament passages, and then he flips to exhortation where he's strongly encouraging people in light of these texts, okay? Uh, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, where we're at this morning, we are in an exposition section that is setting us up for Hebrews 6 and the next, next couple of weeks of strong exhortation, all right? Um, and so listen, the next couple of weeks, there are going to be some strong warnings, some strong exhortations that we give from God's word in the next couple of weeks. But before we can get to that, and the reason why we preach through books of the Bible, before you can get to that, you have to understand Hebrews 5. We have to understand what kind of high priest this is. Is he a stomping, yelling, scowling high priest or something else? And so let's pray, and then we'll jump into the passage of Hebrews 5. 
Father God, this is your word, and these are your people. And I come weary and needy to this task. Lord, I ask that you would help me to proclaim the excellencies of Christ this morning. We ask that your word would change us and transform us, that it would stir up in our hearts a love for Christ and a love for one another. We ask that you would make your truth plain to us. I ask that I would not get in the way of any of this, that any of, of your word and your truth that you want to teach your people this morning. But I ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 5, verse 1. Here we go. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Our author first wants to explain some things to us about the office and the role of the high priest. Okay, the high priest was the person who would represent the people to God. The high priest was the religious leader of the people, the spiritual head, the the chosen representative to mediate between humanity and God. The high priest would offer up sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people. And again, we'll talk over and over the next few months about the high priest, but notice the posture that the high priest has towards the ignorant and the wayward. Look at verse 2. It says, he deals gently. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That phrase, deal gently, in the original language, it's a little bit of a unique phrase, as this is the only place in the New Testament that it is used. However, it is closely related to many other words that are used, so we can uh, get its meaning. But what this phrase means is to give wise, gentle, and patiently restrained care to someone. To deal gently, it means to give wise, gentle, and patiently restrained care to someone. It's a phrase that shares the common root word that we see back in chapter 4, verse 15, when we see that word sympathize. And we'll have that up on the screen. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, in the English, we might miss that connection between Hebrews 4.15 and Hebrews 5.2. But in the original, the, 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 the word for sympathize, as well as the phrase deal gently, has a common root word. They are closely related together. Okay, so to deal gently with someone is getting at the idea of compassionately and sympathetically showing wise, gentle, and patiently re- uh, restrained care for someone. The high priest is able, he is capable of sympathizing with his people and dealing with them not harshly, but with wise, gentle, and patiently restrained care. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Practice of Godliness, has a chapter on gentleness, and he talks about this concept of gentleness or dealing gently with someone. And he writes, gentleness is illustrated by the way we would handle a carton of exquisite crystal glasses. It is the recognition that the human personality is valuable but fragile 
and must be handled with care. But notice that the high priest does not just deal gently with the perfect and the flawless people. It says the high priest deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And that's us. No offense not to wreck your self-esteem this year, but that's us. The people of God, we still sin. We still live in a fallen world, and sometimes we sin out of ignorance, right? Sometimes we unknowingly sin. And then other, other times we sin out of waywardness. We deliberately sin. We deliberately rebel against God. But in relation to the sins of the people of God, the high priest is able to deal gently with both of them. When my boys are acting in disobedience, and it doesn't happen much, but when they do uh, maybe something they know they shouldn't do, right? It kind of they, they disobey out of waywardness. Or maybe sometimes they, they, they do something they didn't even know they shouldn't do, but we have to discipline and correct to teach them that. On my worst parenting days, I unfortunately do not always deal gently with them. And it's more of a, hey, cut it out, right? It's more of a, hey, hey, cut that out. But isn't there something all of our hearts resonate with when we see a parent kneel down to talk to their child? Right? And Pastor Kevin's talked about this some, about the posture of our heart. Like, isn't there just something beautiful when a parent, like, kneels down to talk to their child? Like, what, what is that? Why is that so beautiful? Why is that something that all of our hearts can see that and resonate with? Well, God's word says in Psalm 18, verse 35, it says, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. That could, in Hebrew, literally be translated, You stoop down to make me great. You stoop down to make me great. And so on my best parenting days, uh, when I'm disciplining my boys, that's what it looks like. It's not that I let them get away with whatever they want to get away with. No, if I love them, I need to discipline and correct them. But if I'm dealing gently with them, then I'm going to get down and I'm going to explain what they did and why it was wrong and, and, and correct their behavior and give them a vision of what, how I want them to act then in the future and paint them a picture of just the life of blessing and joy there is to live in obedience. And so why does that picture of stooping down and, and kneeling with a child, why does that resonate with us so much? It resonates with us because this is a picture of the heart of our God. This is a picture of Christ coming down into the world. There is a difference between a high priest that is arms crossed, stomping and scowling, and a high priest who kneels down like this. Church, we are an ignorant and wayward people. 
But there is good news for ignorant and wayward people. And that is there is a great high priest who is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people. You see, we are oftentimes slow to confess sin and come back to Christ because we wrongly assume that he's like this and not like this. Many of us are not progressing in our spiritual maturity and we're just paralyzed in our progress of of, of following Jesus because we wrongly assume that Jesus is like this and not like this. And many of us, we lack joy in our worship as we come together as a people to praise Him and exalt His name. And we lack that joy because we are dreading and assuming that He is like this. And not like this. But if a mere human high priest who is born into sin, can deal gently with God's people, how much more can Jesus, who is the perfect God-man, fully God and fully man? Listen, church, Jesus is a better high priest than what the people of God had ever experienced in their past. And he is a better high priest than anything our minds could imagine. And he is a better high priest than our hearts could hope for. Which let me remind you the title of our study of Hebrews, and it's not original. Lots of pastors titled the study of Hebrews this title, but we're calling it Jesus is better. He's a better high priest. Whatever you thought of him before you came in this morning, I'm telling you, he's better than that. You've had a too low of a view of him. He's a better high priest. Look look back at verse 3. Hebrews 5, verse 3. All the high priests before Christ, they also had to give a sacrifice for their own sins before they could even mediate for the sins of the people. We know this was not the case with Christ, for Christ was the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. Yes, he could sympathize with us because he experienced human weakness and suffering, but he did so without falling into sin. But not only is he a better high priest because of his sinlessness, but also because he's been given a better and eternal calling. All right? That's what we're going to see in these next couple of verses. Jesus has been given a better calling. Because Hebrews 5 verse 4 says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. What this is saying is no high priest is self-appointed. All right? No one's taking volunteers for this position. Okay? They had to be called by God. And now look at these next couple of verses and see this better calling that Jesus has. Jesus has a better and eternal calling. Look at his calling. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, what our author is doing in verses 5 and 6 is quoting a couple of the Psalms from the Old Testament to show us how Jesus has been called and appointed by the Father to not just be another high priest, but to be our great and eternal high priest. He's the last high priest we will ever need. Like, no one's coming after him. He's the last one. He's the ultimate and perfect high priest because he's received a better and eternal calling. 
verse 5, what he's doing is he's quoting from Psalm 2, which I'd encourage you to go back and read all of Psalm 2, but he's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7, which you'll remember was also quoted back in Hebrews 1, verse 5. Psalm 2 was a well-known messianic psalm. And let let me remind you in that phrase, today I have begotten you, let me remind you what that means, because begotten can be a little confusing. We don't use that very much. But what that phrase is getting at is the idea of the Father bringing forth or revealing the Son. All right? It's not a reference to Jesus being created or birthed or anything like that. Jesus has always been the eternal, capital S, Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus being begotten is not a reference to Christmas. It's instead a reference to Easter. It's a reference to the resurrection. And we know this because Psalm 2, verse 7 is also quoted in Acts 13. If you want to go do some digging, uh, Psalm 2, verse 7 is also quoted in Acts 13, which is not referring to the birth of Jesus or the heretical notion of Jesus being created. But know this, today I have begotten you language is instead referring to the resurrection and then ascension to the throne. This today I have begotten you language is describing a bringing forth, a revealing, and it was after Jesus' resurrection and then ascension that it was revealed to all of us and to angels included who this anointed forever king would be. And it would be this anointed forever king that would establish God's kingdom forever. And our author of Hebrews is saying that, okay, our great high priest, has a better calling because not only is he called to be the high priest, but he's also called to be the eternal king. Jesus is our priest and our king, which that was a really rare thing to have happen. The office of priest and king were always kept separate. That is, except for this guy named Melchizedek. Verse 6. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, just just bringing up Melchizedek really could open up a whole can of worms and all these rabbit trails that we could go down. Uh, But for the sake of time today, we will not go down those because we are going to talk more about Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. And so for those of you that really wanted to geek out about Melchizedek, Just be patient, okay? Go read Genesis 14. Go read Psalm 110. And uh, just look forward to Hebrews chapter 7, okay? But we're not going to go down all the Melchizedek rabbit trails today. But this is what you need to know about Melchizedek today. It is that he was a priest and a king. And he lived prior to Moses. He lived prior to the law being given. And so to say that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, to quote Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, our author is emphasizing that Jesus was appointed by the Father to be our great high priest and king forever. He is our priestly king forever. Or you could say he's our kingly priest forever He is priest, and he is king, and he will be forever. Yes, thank you. You guys are with me. All right. Preschoolers, are you still with me? All right, some of you are with me. All right, that's okay. That's all right. That's all right. All right. Jesus, though, he's been begotten from the dead, right? He's been resurrected to life, and now he eternally exists as our great high priest and king. 
All the other high priests had to have a succession plan. They had to figure out what was going to happen after they died. Not so with Jesus. He is our eternal great high priest and king. The question always is, is he your king? Is he your priest? Is he mediating for you? Yes, he is a gentle priest towards his people, towards all who would come to him. But he is a king to be feared for those who continually rebel against his kingdom. But to all who come to him, to those who hear his voice and come, he is a gentle priestly king forever. And it is the eternal aspect of his kingship and priesthood that is a great comfort to his people. Like this isn't going to, you know, cycle through every few years. The eternality of his kingship and his priesthood is a great comfort to his people. This means that we do not have to look to our own performance for our eternal security. This means we don't have to look to our own performance for assurance of salvation. But instead we look to his priesthood. All right, Hebrews chapter 6 is going to give us some strong warnings, some strong exhortations to keep believing, to keep the faith, to go on to maturity. But we can have confidence and peace that we will, not because of faith in our performance, but because of faith in our priest. And he is our eternal great high priest. He will now and forever be a good king and a gentle priest for his people. Look with me now at how good of a king and how gentle of a priest he is and how he is perfectly qualified for this role. Look back at Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now you might read verse 7 and be reminded of the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus' prayer where he's crying out to the Father in painful, agonizing prayer, and yet he ultimately submits to the will of the Father. But surely that was not the only time that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears and emotions. No, this was likely all throughout his life here on earth and something he continues even now as he prays and pleads for his people. Now, a couple other things to note in these verses, all right? Verses 8 through 9 can be a bit confusing when it says that Jesus learned obedience or that he was made perfect. We can read that and we can think, well, was Jesus not previously perfect? I mean, I'm pretty sure he was God. Like, why did he have to learn obedience? But what these verses are teaching us is not that there was anything imperfect or lacking in Jesus's character, but what he lacked was the full experience of living the perfect human life. And this is what was learned, or probably better put, experienced, when he lived here on earth. He fully experienced the pain and suffering and temptations that human beings have and will have to endure here on this earth. And therefore, he's perfectly qualified to be our high priest. He can sympathize with us. He can deal gently with us. 
because he fully experienced life as a human here on earth. And then when verse 9 speaks of Jesus being made perfect, it's, it's not that as if he was previously in a condition of, of imperfection, but instead Jesus being made perfect means that he perfectly completed, fulfilled, and accomplished the role that the Father had given him. He had to obediently suffer to be perfectly qualified to be our great high priest. He had to obediently and perfectly suffer to be perfectly then qualified to become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, like verse 9 says. Now, this does not mean that it is only those who perfectly obey him that will receive salvation. That would be a really sad thought for an ignorant and wayward people. (laughs) But instead, those who have received salvation who have Jesus as their great high priest, the fruit of their faith will be obedience. It will be obedience. Paul, when he writes to the Romans, in Romans 1, verse 5, he writes this. He says, Through whom we have, speaking of Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Franklin, Indiana included. I added that part. But is this not what we want to see carried out here in Franklin? And isn't this why we come together as a group of believers and why we pool our resources and our gifts and our time and our energy as ones who have received grace so that we might corporately, that we might corporately bring about the obedience of faith here in Franklin, Indiana? Listen, Franklin City Church, we are not a social club for you to be a part of. We are not an organization for you to join. We are not merely a supplier of religious goods and services. We are a people partnered together to carry out the mission of Jesus here in Franklin. We are not just having services here in Franklin to try to get decisions for Christ or anything like that. We are planting a church, and a church is a people partnered together with a common mission sent by God to make disciples of Christ, meaning that we are to bring about the obedience of faith here in this place. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe we will. Not just us solely. We weren't the first believers to get to Franklin, and I don't think we'll be the last ones to be here either. But we'll be a part of God's story here in Franklin to make disciples, to bring about the obedience of faith. And my prayer is that what's happening in this room right now will will produce the fruit of obedience for years to come. And it will go beyond any of our lifetimes as more and more people worship Jesus. But sadly, we can be paralyzed and divided in this pursuit when we forget a couple of things. We will be paralyzed and divided in this pursuit when we forget that Jesus deals gently with us and when we forget to deal gently with one another. When our view of our high priest is like this, and not like this, 
everything gets out of whack. Everything gets out of whack. And so I would encourage you to go, go from here to this place. Like, don't just take my words for it. Like, go study what Christ-like gentleness it really looks like. I, I'm going to guess that that's not a character trait that many of us are praying for and wanting to see cultivated in us. Go study what it looks like to have the gentleness of Christ. I, I had mentioned Jerry Bridges' book on the practice of godliness. It's got a chapter on it. There's a book that came out in this last year called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. That's good. There's a Spurgeon sermon titled The Gentleness of Jesus. Just go Google Gentleness of Jesus uh, Spurgeon, and you can pull up a transcript. And I'd go recommend you go read those things. Read about the gentleness of Christ. What Spurgeon points out is that there is only one place in the four gospel accounts where Jesus describes the posture of his heart. Only one place. And it's found in Matthew 11. So turn with me to Matthew 11. Pastor Kevin, we learned last week, loves the sound of turning Bible pages. So we are doing this to show honor and bring him joy since I am making it difficult for him with the live stream camera, with the amount of kneeling down I'm doing. <laughs> Matthew 11, Matthew 11, verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what is he? I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus, our great high priest, tells us the posture of his heart. And he tells us that he is gentle and lowly in heart. To be lowly means that he is accessible. To be lowly means that he is approachable. To be lowly means that he stoops down to make us great. Church, our eternal priest and king is gentle and lowly. He is accessible and approachable. He is understanding and sympathetic. He is compassionate and kind. He cares for his people with wise, gentle, patient restraint. He deals gently with his people. Why do we run from him? Why do we hide from him? Why are we slow to go to him? Why do we turn to others before turning to him? He is gentle and lowly in heart. What great comfort that brings us. I mean, I don't, I don't care what else happens in 2021. That right there should give us all the comfort we need. And my question for you, as, as I'm going to wind things down in a bit, is if Jesus deals gently with his people, if Jesus deals gently with his people, shouldn't you deal gently with them as well? So let's, let's check our hearts. Is the posture of your heart like this? A lot of church people look like this. 
Or is it like this? Now let me warn you. It's way easier to see a lack of gentleness in others than it is to see it in ourselves. Some of you, you've already made your list of people that are like, yeah, they're not gentle, and now I'm going to call them out, right? Don't do that first. But I really believe that all of us, myself included, myself included, need to grow in the gentleness of Jesus. And so what you might need to do, if, if you're brave enough, you might need to get a trusted brother or sister, maybe someone in your city group, and, and pull them aside and ask them, like, hey, how do you experience me? Now, that's a scary question to ask. But find someone you trust, someone that hopefully will be gentle with you in return, and ask them, like, hey, do, do you see the gentleness of Christ in me? Or do I come off as blunt and harsh and critical? Like, ask, ask someone you trust to give you an honest answer. And ask the Spirit to search your own heart, to think about your own life. Like, think about it. Are you a person that people are afraid to approach? Are you a person that it is intimidating to approach? Are people in your city group afraid to answer questions around you? Because they think you're silently judging them or you're going to swoop in and correct anything that they're wrong on. We need to pray for the grace of gentleness in our church. We need to do this Tuesday mornings. We need to do this in our city groups. We need to do this on our own. We need to pray for the grace of gentleness in our church. One of the most well-known and great Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, he called gentleness the Christian spirit. And Edwards says this. We'll have this up on the screen. Jonathan Edwards says, All who are truly godly and are real disciples of Christ have a gentle spirit in them. Brothers and sisters, yes, we have a great high priest who deals gently with us. And if we have been united to him through faith, and if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, then shouldn't we deal gently with one another? Paul, when he's instructing the churches in Ephesians, he writes to the, the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, Verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He goes on then and writes to the Galatians. In Galatians 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... He doesn't say to, to blow it off or just ignore it or just sweep it under the rug. That's not what he's talking about. He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. But you do it in a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of gentleness. So this doesn't mean that we take sin lightly or that we don't stand our ground on biblical truth. I'm convinced more and more that, hey, in the year 2021... Sort of like we started to see in 2020, like we will have to take some stands on biblical truth. 
We, we must speak the truth in love. We must call out one another and correct one another. We must preach and teach God's word to bring about the obedience of faith. We must do these things, but we must do them with a spirit and a posture of gentleness. Of gentleness. We do this humbly and patiently, and we bear with one another. To deal gently with one another means that we pass truth and wisdom onto one another in a way that it can be received. We'll, we'll close with another basketball illustration. Uh, pastor Kevin last week talked about basketball, and it just reminded me that, you know, all your pastors here, we really grew up with a love of basketball. Uh, we don't talk about it much because we're afraid we would just cry too much. We get very romantic about basketball. Uh, but it would be helpful for you if you really you know, watch Hoosiers a couple times a week and just we're ready for these illustrations, okay? Uh, but back in the day when you could participate in team sports, I was coaching Jackson's basketball team. And the first thing that, one of the first things we did at practice was I, I, taught, I was trying to teach the boys how to pass, you know, pass to one another. And so this was my first time coaching, had them all line up, you know, partnered up with someone. And I said, okay, now pass the ball to your teammate. And I didn't really give any other instruction. And when the, when the boys heard, pass the ball to your teammate, I think what they heard was, throw the ball as hard as you can at your teammate's face, all right? Because that is what happened. It was rockets just right at the other person's face, right? Now, that, that's sort of a, that's an immature passer, right? I mean, they heard the coach say, pass the ball, and there was no regard to how it was going to be received. It was just launched at the other kid's face. And when that happens, there's usually some pain involved, maybe some bloody noses, some tears. Players were obediently throwing the pass I told them to throw, just not in a way that it could be received. That's when I had to understand, like, no, 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 like, like pass, it, pass it gently. Give them a pass they can catch. Don't, don't throw a, a lazy or, or a, a weak pass but, but throw a gentle pass. Throw it in a way that it can be received. And so I learned with young boys, the first pass you really need to probably teach them is a bounce pass. But the, other, the other kid can catch that. Give them a bounce pass. Now, in the back of my head, I know that, hey, as they mature and they grow, I'm going to teach them a chest pass. I'm going to teach them an overhead pass. I'm going to teach them the baseball throw pass. I'm going to teach them the no-look pass, right? That one was right to Dustin. He, he was ready for it. But listen, in our dealings with one another, sometimes right here, right now, the person in front of us, they need a bounce pass. A man who is playing catch with a toddler and throws an underhand pass to him, that does not make him a weak man. That makes him gentle. A gentle person, gentle people are some of the strongest people out there, but a gentle person understands how to use his strength to not hurt the people around him. A gentle person how to, understands how and when to restrain his strength so that the truth and wisdom he's passing on might be received. A gentle person, a Christ-like person, a Christ-like member of the body of Christ passes truth and wisdom on to someone in a way that the person can receive it without getting a bloody nose. 
Church, praise God that we have an eternal great high priest who deals gently with his people. And we can and should moment by moment be quick to approach him and enjoy him. He does not deal with us like this. I can't even do it anymore. The scowl. He deals with us like this. And my prayer is that we would be a church that would take comfort in and we would quickly run to Jesus, our gentle priest and king. And may we be humble, gentle, and lowly towards one another. Let's pray for these things. Bow with me in prayer.